tenakoto, tenakoto, tenatato katoa, no mai harimai ki tene fare karakio te atua, tene fare karakio o te zoom. Welcome everyone to the Aotearoa Unitarian Service this morning. I'm very delighted that we have a guest speaker, Dr. Rebecca Stafford, who will be with us, and I'll introduce her shortly. Today, we are thankful. Today, some of you, we have quite a number of Americans here in the audience, um, usually. I think it, at one point, we said we were 30% American in the Auckland Unitarian Church. And this was just the holiday of Thanksgiving just passed, so it's appropriate we've got our um, theme on gratitude today. Today, we are thankful for you and for what you each bring to this fellowship. For those who embrace Thanksgiving as a day to honor the gifts of family, friendship, abundance, security, we celebrate with you and join our voices to hold aloft all blessings for which you are grateful. And for those who hold Thanksgiving as a day of sadness, who mourn for the hurt and loss of native peoples who are lonely, who grieve the loss of the dear and beloved, we hold your heartache so you don't have to carry the burden alone. Blessings be upon you. Viv, if you could go up for our chalice lighting now. I'll read a verse for you. I will light the chalice here as well. And if you care to light a chalice at home, feel free, or a candle. We gather here today to share and give thanks, to tell stories and be together in holy communion. We light our chalice this morning in the spirit of thanksgiving with love, hope, and generosity of spirit, grateful for this blessed opportunity to be together. Okay, so our guest speaker today is known as Dr. Habit, and she holds a PhD in health psychology. Today, she will talk to us about both the spiritual and the scientific support for gratitude. Hint, gratitude can boost self-control, perfect timing for 2024 resolutions. 2023. Oh, and 20, yeah. my talk, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Oh, sorry, 2023. <laughs> and 2024, she yes. will also consider the relationship between gratitude and self-control and consider some unusual things to be grateful for. Please help me welcome Dr. Rebecca Stafford. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, everyone. So there's a lot of talk about gratitude flying around right now with uh, Thanksgiving just gone and Christmas approaching. So gratitude is a good thing, of course, and there's a lot of spiritual and scientific support for it. However, I'm going to take a slightly unusual approach and talk about the somewhat circuitous, um, twisty path between gratitude and self-control. And of course, self-control is also timely with New Year's resolutions coming up. So we'll talk a little more about self-control before explaining how gratitude influences self-control. So before we do all that, I'm going to ask you to do a slightly uncomfortable thought exercise. And it's the kind of thought exercise that the less you think about it, the better it works. 
So if you have a pen and paper, that's great. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'm just going to ask you to write down or think about four emotions. Stress, shame, contentment or content, and joy. Stress, shame, content, and joy. And when you've done that, can you please rate, either on paper or just in your mind, how you're feeling now for each emotion from zero to 10? Zero being no emotion at all through to 10 being max. So please don't overthink this. Um, so again, stress, shame, content, and joy. How much we're feeling right now for those from zero to 10. Okay, now back to self-control. Now I love New Year's Eve because, because I'm obsessed with habits. I'm always asking people if they made if they've made New Year's resolutions. And I've found most people's New Year's resolutions resolve around habits, trying to break unhealthy habits or create healthier ones. But fascinatingly enough, what I've found is almost everyone tells me that they have given up making New Year's resolutions. And note that they don't say, I don't make New Year's resolutions, they say they've given up making them. And the reason they give for this is they always tell me, oh, I'm no good at um, habit change. And the reason they give for that is that they say, I don't have any self-control. Now, that is a really common myth. Okay, so I find most people believe that self-control is some kind of fixed genetic dichotomous um, characteristic that you either have self-control or you don't, and, and we think we don't. And the truth is that we all have access to self-control. We just need to learn how to access it. And this can be seen in a somewhat infamous uh, Stanford University marshmallow self-control test. So you, you may have heard of these, but there's some little known results from those self-control marshmallow tests that most people don't know, which are very relevant for self-control and habit change, which I'm about to tell you what they are. So if you haven't heard of it, um, in his book, The Marshmallow Test, um, the lead researcher, Walter Mischel, talks about the, um, the basic test. So basically, kids were offered um, a single marshmallow or treat of their choice, um, and they could have the single marshmallow now, or they could try and ignore it and wait for a larger delayed reward of two marshmallows. And they basically found that, um, so kids who who couldn't wait for the larger delayed reward of two marshmallows and scoffed the single marshmallow in front of them, were deemed to be low self-controlled children. And conversely, kids who could um, resist the single marshmallow in front of them and wait for the delayed reward of uh, two marshmallows were deemed high self-controlled children. However, rather than just um, arbitrarily labeling children as high self-control and low self-control, the researchers noticed that the two groups of children, low self-control and high self-control, actually behaved quite differently. And specifically, the low self-control children were labeled as marshmallow starers. Um, Sally, help me out with the Kiwi <laughs> accent if you're American, <laughs> your American colleagues need it. Marshmallow which, which, starers. Okay, which meant that they just stared at the single marshmallow in front of them until they caved gave in and ate the single marshmallow and missed out on the larger delayed reward. Whereas the high self-control children um, behaved really differently. They did everything but 
stare at the single marshmallow in front of them. They distracted themselves. They um, pulled funny faces. They composed songs. They played with their feet and hands. They um, tried to sleep. One little girl actually did fall asleep um, and was able to resist the single marshmallow. Uh, some of them even um, imagined the single marshmallow, the high self-control self children, even imagined the single marshmallow in front of them as something inedible, like a fluffy white cloud, and maybe even with cockroaches crawling over it. Crawling over it. So the questions the researchers then asked were, were these um, kind of distraction self-control tactics that the high self-control children had, were they innate, were they genetic, or can they be taught? And as you might guess, um, actually, it was very simple for the researchers to alter the children's level of self-control with very simple instructions. So many of the instructions involved asking the children to change the way they thought about the single marshmallow in front of them. So um, thinking of the marshmallow as something inedible or disgusting enabled them to resist it and hold out for the larger delayed reward. Um, conversely, asking the children to focus on how tasty and delicious the single marshmallow in front of them was, of course, lowered their self-control and they were more likely to eat the single one and miss out on the bigger later reward. And also interestingly, um, and very, very importantly, there was another way to modify the children's self-control and that was using emotions. And they did this very simply they asked the children, so for example, they asked the children to think about um, sad things, such as uh, feeling alone and sad. And this uh, caused the children's self-control to plummet. Um, so it was comparable to if they thought the marsh, just focused on how delicious the mars marshmallow was. But fortunately this worked the other way as well and instructing the children to think about happy things um, boosted their self-control and they were able to hold out and wait for the larger delayed reward of the two marshmallows. So this is a really critical finding that not only self-control is not some innate fixed genetic characteristic that you can't do anything about, um, there's actually very simple things we can do to alter our self-control. Um, I do actually want to insert at this point that um, this definition of self-control, that kind of the ability to resist immediate gratification and wait for larger reward, rewards is actually wrong <laughs> because uh, sometimes actually going for the immediate reward is actually the right thing. It's actually context dependent. However, this definition of um, this incorrect definition is widespread and I'm just going to kind of run with that for now. So I just want you to know that. So, but, so not only can we do things to alter our self-control, but um, the use of emotion, we can alter our self-control. And so I'm going to ask you to go back to our little thought experiment. So now I'm going to ask you to do something um, uncomfortable, and I hope you're going to forgive me, and don't, please don't blame Sally. She doesn't know I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> She's laughing. Um, so I'm going to ask you to think about something. Now I'd like you to think about that thing you did, that thing you did that you hope no one ever finds out about. And if that's too intense, you can think of something else. And while most people have more than a few things they hope no one ever finds out about, um, maybe maybe you don't, and that's that's great. But in that case, think of something that you know not done at your sort of peak high self moment. Now, I just like you to dwell on this thing that you did just for a moment. This thing that you did that you hope no one ever finds out about.
Now I'm going to ask you to please rate those four emotions again from zero to 10, just in your, a little harder if it's in your head, but, but thanks for trying. Stress, shame, content, and joy. Stress, shame, content, and joy. You just rate those from zero to 10. Thank you for playing if you're doing it in your head. Now they may have changed. Now, if there's a big emotional charge around this thing that you did, and there probably is, at least for some of us, that's a sign it hasn't healed. That's a sign it hasn't healed. It means the emotions are stuck and haven't been released. And it's important that these emotions are released and healed. It matters because repressed emotions predict post-traumatic stress disorder, they degrade our mental and physical health, they degrade our immunity, and you guessed it, they also degrade our self-control. And the problem is most of us aren't taught constructive ways of dealing with our challenging, more difficult emotions. However, uh, gratitude is one way of healing and releasing these emotions and gaining the benefits from that. Now, I'm gonna give you a really personal example of this. So I have been writing a book on habit change and I've been writing it for over four years. That's longer than my PhD thesis. Okay, um, it's, actually, it's actually really embarrassing because I'm struggling with all the things that I'm so good at helping other people with. Um, the procrastination, uh, the shame, feeling powerless. It's been really, really, really frustrating. Now, I know um, procrastination is actually another habit. Um, and I know it's a form of self-sabotage. I know there's a part of us, um, often a wounded child part, that is just trying to keep me safe. Um, and my, sometimes known as the inner critic, uh, my one is, is effectively telling me, don't finish the book. Uh, don't publish it. It won't be good enough. It'll be criticized and you'll be ridiculed. And then your tribe will guess your guilty secret that you're not good enough and chuck you out of the cave and die of loneliness and starvation and saber-toothed tiger. So, <laughs> Sally's laughing. Um, so, um, however, knowing what was causing my problem wasn't enough to overcome it. And I think probably even added to my frustration. Like, oh. So did I mention I'm a recovering control freak? Um, <laughs> Sally, you know anything about that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, however, I've only recently realized the point of all this. My procrastination was keeping me safe. Um, and I've realized that while my book was actually ready to be, ready to be published several years ago, I wasn't ready. Um, I, if I had released my book several years ago, I would have been probably devastated by some of the criticism, probably if it had come from someone who I really respect, um, probably to the extent I may never have published another book again. Um, but arguably worse, I would have also fumbled the bouquets. My insufficiently, my insufficiently healed ego wouldn't have handed the praise that came with my, my book as well. Like a psychic friend of mine who's been right about everything so far has said that I will be on the Oprah show. Okay. But I know if I had, um, if I'd been on the Oprah show as recently as a few months ago, I would have completely fluffed the interview. I would have been like a frozen robot. I know. And, and I know, and I know this 
from a rough experience I had a few months ago, um, a, a wealthy high profile um, client had booked a therapy session with me. And, and this is really embarrassing sharing this, um, but my ego got really excited about this, um, the prospect of working with this high profile wealthy client. I imagined me fixing her issues and all the ways that all the other therapists hadn't been able to. Uh, Sally's laughing again. Uh, <laughs> um, it's embarrassing. All the way through to like me imagining her referring all her wealthy clients to me. And, and I knew at the time when I was these thoughts were running through my head, these thoughts and emotions were running through my head. I knew at the time, like, this is trouble. I could, but I, but you know, they were there. And actually, when we actually had the coaching session um, together, it didn't go that well. And she declined to book another session with me. And I was devastated. Um, I went right into uh, I'm a bad therapist mode. I'm a terrible person. I should have known. It was all my ego in the way. Uh, and I had this really heavy psychological weight of I'm not good enough, right, really crashing down onto me, which I know is a self-worth issue. I've been through this before. And funnily enough, it wasn't even a bad session. Uh, I found out later that the session uh, went much better than I realized. Um, but it actually went a bit too well for my client um, as she wasn't ready to change. Um, but uh, the experience uh, showed me how vulnerable I still was to getting less than perfect external feedback and, the, and that I needed to do more healing of my self-worth. And that involved accepting myself like all of myself, including the procrastination with the book, and the feelings, the frustration, the shame, the embarrassment, the anger at myself, all of it. So we are more than our emotions, but they are part of us. And when we stop denying, suppressing and ignoring parts of us and start accepting all of ourselves, there's no need to feel lonely anymore. And as Brene Brown explains, like if Brene Brown criticized my book, I would have been a few months ago, I would have been floored anyway. Anyway, as she explains, because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic and perfect selves to the world, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. So I'm going to ask you to do the thought exercise again, but with a difference. And this is the last time, I promise. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to think of that thing you did again, that thing you did that you hope no one ever finds out about. We're going to do it a bit, a bit differently. So if you could just dwell on that thing. This time we're going to tend to those emotions. We're going to tend to the shame the stress, the contentment, and the joy. If we start with shame, if you could sort of like go inward, can you tell where in the body you might be feeling this? And sometimes, sometimes people can't tell, but that's okay. But can you feel where it might be in your body? Is there a color? If your shame could speak, what would it say? Are there any physical sensations? Any tightness? Any pain? Any openness? Could do the same with stress. 
stress related to that thing you did that you hope no one ever finds about finds out about is there a place in your body you can feel it is there a color if it could speak what would it say are there any physical sensations any tightness pain openness and I've included accepting commitment, uh, contentment and joy as we often deny these feelings in a workaholic culture which um, values um, stress and busy work. Um, contentment and joy often don't feel safe. So that thing you did that you hope no one ever finds about, can you see if there's any contentment in your body or even any fear of contentment? Is there a place? Is there a color? If it could speak, what would it say? Any physical sensations? And we'll do the same with joy. And it may be just fear of joy. Is there a place in your body? Is there a color? If it could speak, what would joy say? Any physical sensations? Tightness? Pain? Or openness. Now I invite you to be grateful to these feelings, to all of them, and the parts of you that generated them. We're just trying to keep you safe. You may like to thank them. You may like to say, I love you, if that's possible. Just be with them. You can obviously come back to this anytime you like. But now for the last time, can you please rate those four emotions again? Shame, stress, contentment, and joy from zero to 10. Shame, stress, contentment, joy. You may or may not notice that those ratings have changed and I apologize to those of you courageous souls without pen and paper. Now, I'd just like to make a warning. Beware spiritual bypassing with gratitude. So, for example, I'm grateful for the experience with a wealthy client. It was really rough, but it, and it, but it showed me where I still needed to heal. I mean, better that I went through that with her than with Oprah Winfrey. But, but, I, needed to but, but I needed to tend to my feelings of failure and shame with love and gratitude before I got to gratitude for the rough experience, for the, for the tough love. What we resist persists. What we feel, we can heal. So in concluding, my call to action is when things appear to be going really badly for you, please practice noticing the feelings that are triggered. Get mindful, maybe even like stop and sit down for a few minutes. Tend to the feelings and if possible, offer them love and gratitude. And a reminder of the premise of mindful self-compassion, which is we practice compassion and gratitude to ourselves, not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So, plus when we switch from denying, suppressing and rejecting parts of ourselves, we relieve stress, we boost our health along with our self-control. And this makes all of our New Year's resolutions much easier. 
So I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and I wish you all the best with um, accepting all of yourself and with those New Year's resolutions. Um, I will post this, um, a transcript of this on the, um, on the, the site uh, and there's also a few links to some of the research around uh, gratitude and a few extra gratitude practices as well. So um, that's all from me for now. So thank you for bearing with me. I'll hand back to Sally. Thank you, Rebecca. That was awesome. That was wonderful. Really enjoyed that. Um, got a lot out of it. And we're going to have some breakout room questions to be able to explore this a bit further. And now if you join me in the extinguishing your chalice verse, it should be on your strong sheet there. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. <clears throat> okay. So I'm going to say the closing words and then I'll give you your breakout questions. And Rebecca and I were talking, we'd like to just do breakouts in groups of two because you can really dig into the topic a bit more deeply than when if you have groups of five or six. Okay. Here's our closing words are by the Unitarian minister, Emeritus, Emeritus. Um, Charles Howe of Wilmington, North Carolina. <clears throat> May we go forth from this place thankful for the life that sustains and renews us. May we go forth from this place with openness and thanksgiving. Here are the questions and Ted is going to paste them in the chat. What situations, events, people, which were unwanted at the time, are you now grateful for? And how did they help you? What lessons did you learn? Okay, those are suggested discussions and we'll go into groups of just two. <clears throat>